these are revolutionary times that we're living in, really. In Western culture, there are changes taking place which are turning upside down and inside out the way we think and act. These changes are more radical than anything that we've seen for over 400 years, and they're happening now, and they're happening at speed. Actually, the older you are, the more aware you'll be aware of this. You once inhabited a world with certain shared values, with fixed reference points, but these have gone. And in their place has arisen a cacophony of contradictory voices. Let me illustrate what I mean from the past week's news. On Monday, Sakia Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, publicly apologised for visiting a church over Easter. This black majority church was doing a remarkable job in its community, it was feeding the poor, it was using its premises for COVID vaccinations, but it's crime that caused the leader of the Labour Party to apologise was that the pastor of that church preached the Bible and was not in favour of same-sex marriage. That was on Monday. On Tuesday, Caitlyn Jenner, the most famous transgender woman in the world, was reported as seriously considering a run to become the next Republican governor of California. And on Wednesday, the Conservative government announced it was cutting the fee for a gender recognition certificate from £140 to £5. And the process to one of self-identification rather than the medical diagnosis. Now, look, I list these stories without comment, except to say the older you are, the more surprised you'll be. But for those under 30, this will hardly raise an eyebrow, actually. The culture we live in, the way we think, and the things we instinctively accept has undergone a revolutionary change. And at the heart of all of this is the issue of identity. Who are you really? How would you identify yourself? Are you living an authentic life? Or are you playing the hypocrite? Are you being true to yourself? Or are you being controlled by the expectations of others? And it's my purpose this morning to look at what the Bible teaches, namely that we're made in the image of God, as we heard read to us, and particularly contained there in Genesis 1 verses 26 to 27. But before we engage with that text, and actually I hope we'll see it's more profound than we might have initially imagined, we need to understand the situation in which we live. We need to understand why certain assumptions are now being made. People in the Bible were commended for understanding the times in which they lived. 
and knowing how to respond. And my friends, we must do likewise. You see, in Western society, belief in God was taken for granted until about 300 years ago. Now, that didn't mean that everyone was a a God-fearer. It didn't mean that everyone had a living faith. Far from it. But rather that people's thinking instinctively made assumptions based on the existence of God. But that all started to change with the coming of the so-called Age of Enlightenment, in which the power of reason and trust in the scientific method began squeezing God out to the periphery of intellectual life. If you couldn't see it, if you couldn't measure it, if you couldn't control it, then you didn't trust it. And here in Edinburgh, one of our celebrated sons, David Hume, Uh, whose mausoleum, by the way, is well worth a visit on the old Carlton burial ground. You can see it there. David Hume is widely regarded as one of the main movers and shakers of the Enlightenment. And such thinking has gradually permeated down from the intellectual elites and soaked into the general consciousness of society as a whole. And what I want to suggest is that what we're seeing today, which for some is deeply distressing, is actually the natural, the logical outworking of a society that has rejected God. This shouldn't surprise us. Let me picture it this way. Most of us here, probably all of us here Uh, And many of us who who are listening online believe in God. In fact, many of us would declare that God, by his grace, has found us and rescued us and adopted us into his family. We find our peace and we find our joy in Jesus Christ. And more than that, we find our relationships and our identity in that relationship with Christ. I know who I am and I understand who you are. And because our reference point is outside us, in God, then I see an order and I see a meaning to history. I have a past, I have a present, I have a future. But if you've taken God out of the picture, then you have no external reference point. There's nothing beyond There's nothing to take a bearing by. There's nothing to compare with. So if God is out of the picture, then religion has to be regarded as, well, it's just superstition. And the the laws and the morality that I live by actually have then to come from within myself and not to be drawn from some fake external deity. I'm now the centre. I have to look within to be true to who I am. And my happiness, it's my happiness and it's my feelings that count above everything else. So maybe you can see how we got where we are today. Now, I know this is simplistic. 
And I know it's well nigh impossible to capture the development of philosophy and popular culture in the space of a few sentences. But I want to give you a framework whereby you can understand what's happening today and give you a context for understanding and applying the wonderful Bible truth that we're made in the image of God. Because the bottom line is this. When you do away with God, then you have to go into yourself to find true happiness and meaning. Your thoughts become more real than anything on the outside. Your identity is something you create and not something that comes from the outside. There is no external reference point. This is true freedom, we are told. Now, follow with me the implications of this. Religion is to be abolished because it gives a false answer to a real need. And if we are to find true happiness, then actually we must throw off the restrictions of religion. And many would see you guys here this morning being in this building as poor, benighted, outdated folks who are repressed, who are not finding their true selves. And not just religion, but marriage restricts the individual's desires. And so marriage must go also in its present form. Uh, and ideas like this go back many centuries. Marriage is restrictive. How can you just say one person for the whole of your life is sufficient? It is restrictive. It's denying you, stopping you being the real you. And not just marriage, but the family as well. As the influence of parents repress the child. And parents, you see, tend to underline the repressive nature of society's values. So if you want children to be free, you really have to take them away from the authority of parents. And actually, probably the wise state is a far better place that there is that sort of responsibility and authority. And if it's sex that drives the human experience, if that's the primary area of my happiness and fulfillment, then my sexual choices identify me. Sex becomes who I am, not what I do. And if I think that I inhabit the wrong gender body, then I'm only being truly authentic to myself to use technology to change the outside. For my feelings, it's my thoughts that trump everything. The external world is less real than my internal thoughts. And the greatest evil that anyone can do is to question your choices or your feelings. The greatest oppression today is not economic, but it is psychological. And the implication of that is that if free speech means that you can question or doubt what someone else feels, then you are disturbing them. You're harming them, and that must be stopped. So governments feel the need to introduce laws about 
hate speech. It is the logical progression and development. And governments become fearful of a Christian praying for someone, lest that person feels pressure to change and be less authentic to their real lives. Now, look, forgive me if I've lost you over the last uh, few minutes. The danger of trying to compress so much into so little time is very real and obvious on an occasion like this. But I want us to see that what's going on around us, and there's so much more I could have pointed out, is the logical development of a system that excludes God. Once he is out of the picture, then actually this is the inevitable direction of travel. And by the way, if you want to look at these things in greater detail and see the philosophers and thinkers who have taken us down this route, then I warmly commend this book by Carl Truman. It's come out in about, I think, about the last six months, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It is uh, a vital work. It is such an important work. It takes some reading. It took me about a fortnight to get through this, uh, but it is well worth the effort if you want to get into this. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, cultural amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. It is a brilliant book that has prompted uh, a lot of what I am saying. Um, now, this has all come as an extended introduction, and some would say a very extended introduction, uh, to understanding what the Bible says when it declares that we are made in the image and likeness of God. I, I trust you, you can see that this isn't some backwater doctrine that we're, we're looking at. I don't know if you turned up this morning and you saw on, on screen, it said Andy's going to be preaching on the image of God, and you went, uh, boring. Is that really relevant? Well, yes, it is. It is absolutely vital. It goes to the heart of society today. For when you go to the very beginning of the Bible's story, as it outlines the creation of the world, it shouldn't surprise us that we need to pay close attention to the first words that were used about the creation of mankind. Let me read Genesis 1, 26 to 27 to you again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and, in, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And you'll notice there are two words used here to describe the essential form of humanity. We are told that we are made in the image of God and that we're made in the likeness of God. And they are different Hebrew words. They are getting at two different aspects of humanity. Let's take likeness first. God made us in his likeness. And this actually indicates that humanity has a special relationship to God, like that of a father and son. This is made clearer in the opening verses of chapter 5 in Genesis that comes shortly after. Let me read to you from Genesis 5, 1b through to verse 3. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. 
He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. So you see, the writer is likening the relationship of God to humanity in the way that a father-child relationship operates. In other words, this is more than God's relationship to the animals. Humankind is in a special relationship with its creator. There's something special, there's something unique about this relationship. There's a bond, as there is between a child and its parents. So this word likeness refers to the vertical relationship that exists between God and humankind. But when we go on to the second expression used, God said, let us make mankind in our image. This has more to do with the horizontal relationship that humankind has with the rest of the world. The word itself actually is closely connected to the way that a king rules. In other words, humans are to represent God's rule in the world. Now let me illustrate this from an Egyptian pharaoh who lived about 200 years after the exodus after the exodus, after the time when Moses compiled the book of Genesis. Now, Ramesses II had his image constructed in a number of locations. Now, uh, here he is at the temple of Abu Simbel on the borders of Egypt and Sudan. That is his image. And here's another statue of him built over a thousand miles away at the mouth of the Nael Kalb River, which is north of Beirut. Now, the purpose of both was to let the observer know that Ramesses II ruled the area where that statue had been erected. And the statue was also there to show how impressive. Ramesses II was, so that the inhabitants were to be in awe of the king and who he was. And you see, in the same way, we're to understand that Almighty God expects his character and his rule to be mediated through his people. If the world wants to know what God looks like, it's an essential requirement and responsibility of God's people that they should be like him. You see, that's why you won't find statues, stone statues of almighty God littering the planet. It would be an impossibility to represent him physically, which is why God himself forbids it. Rather, his representatives, you and me, the followers of Jesus Christ, are to be the ones who reflect his holy character and his gracious rule. So where should people look if they want to see God in action? Where is his image? It's you and me. Especially working together as the church of God. 
We reflect his character. We are the stewards of his grace. Now, of course, you and I know that God's image, God's likeness in us has been marred. It was distorted by our rebellion. Our thoughts, our actions, our motives are not what they should be. The relationship we were supposed to enjoy with God, that's been broken. But the wonder is that God prepared a way whereby that image, that likeness could be restored and renewed. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live the righteous life that we could never live. And to die the wrath-filled death that we all deserve. And God's purpose was that through Jesus, he should reconcile us to himself and renew that relationship and renew that image. Listen to Paul explain the implications of that there in Colossians 3 verses 9 to 10. He says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now get this, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. God's amazing grace, you see, is such that through the word of God and the spirit of God, we are being made to look more and more like Jesus. As it were, we're increasingly able to steward his grace wherever we live. Look, these are glorious truths, and if you struggle to understand them, then please put it down to the incompetence of the preacher rather than doubt the wonderful truth of this awesome gospel. So let me summarize and apply this to each one of us. My first head for this is my alienation is dealt with in Jesus. My alienation is dealt with in Jesus. I use the word alienation because many writers and thinkers in explaining the human condition have recognized that there is a problem. They have used this expression themselves. But for them, this problem lies outside the individual. For them, the problem is either a repressive society or controlling rules or economic injustice or psychological repression. And their answer is to destroy those attitudes, those institutions that restrict people from being authentic. Once that happens, they argue, then that sense of alienation will be gone. And actually, that's the battle that's raging across university campuses and media organizations at the moment. If you're uh, a student here or, or, or listening online, you will be very aware that this is a very current topic. And the point is this, they're right. There is a problem. There is a sense of alienation. And we should listen respectfully to each story of hurt and unease. Even if folks are looking in the wrong areas for their answers, we should acknowledge that genuine sense of lostness and pain. Don't ever be the person 
who drives someone away because they are looking for their answers in the wrong places. Listen to them. Listen. Understand that sense of alienation and lostness. But you see, the answer doesn't primarily lie outside of us. Get rid of these repressive institutions. The problem is within us. We are all broken and disconnected from our Creator. Our interior thoughts and feelings are not somehow neutral or good. They're actually mixed up and rebellious. And my friends, this is the glory of the Christian good news. Jesus Christ died on a cross to break down the barriers that separate us from God and that separate us from one another. He came to deal with alienation. He came to deal with our brokenness and rebellion. It is through him, through Jesus, that true renewal comes. So I say to you, don't put your trust, don't put your hope, don't put your security in any other than Jesus Christ. Look outside yourself. Call to him for rescue. And if you're here or listening online and you have these issues of saying, but I, I feel this disconnectedness and we really have got to deal with the forces and the issues that are making me feel so alien. My friends, the issue is inside of yourself and the answer is in Jesus Christ. Look to him. Call to him. He invites you to do just that. The second point I want to make by way of application is this. My joy comes from being in Jesus. My joy comes from being in Jesus. You see, society is increasingly focused on inward happiness. Psychological well-being is prized above everything. Mindfulness rules. And once again, there's something in that search we can all relate to. We sense we were made for something more. We sense that true happiness is a goal worth pursuing. But the Bible's teaching is that this isn't to be found by looking within ourselves for a state of authentic completion, but by looking out to the one who can restore us to our original design. We were made by God to find our completion in him, to find our joy in being in his likeness. And the one who's trusting in Jesus Christ discovers that their wholeness comes from being united to him, sharing his holiness. You see, discovering our identity is not in our sexual orientation. Our identity is in him. Secure through all the circumstances of life. Joyful through the bad times as well as the good. Delighting in all the gifts that he himself delights to lavish upon his children. Knowing that I'm not the result of a chaotic and chance coming together of atoms and molecules. Someone who's left to find my own happiness in this meaningless world wherever I can know. But rather I'm known and loved and I am secure. In the grip of a gracious and a sovereign God. My joy comes from being in Jesus. Thirdly, finally, my purpose comes through serving Jesus. My purpose comes through serving Jesus. 
As we've seen, being made in the image of God gives me a reason for living. I'm here to bring him glory by sharing in his rule. And what is that rule? Is it to oppress and to crush and to bully? Nothing of the sort. Just take a look at Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. Let me read to you from John 13. Start at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So do you get that? Jesus knew all things were under his power. He had all power. Now look at the connection. So, so, what does Jesus do? He is the one of all power. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You see, by his astounding grace, I can now share in his likeness. My relationship with God is restored by Jesus. And being made in his image calls upon me to live my life, not for my glory, not primarily for my sense of well-being, but for the blessing of others that points them to his glory and the joy that's found in him. So my brothers and sisters, don't be disheartened by the vicious culture wars that rage around us. And they are vicious and and they are disturbing. And without God at the center of life, this is inevitable. And without God, may I say, it is inevitable that such schemes will brutally fracture among themselves as more and more contradictions arise. Those who are pushing forward these agendas with the very best of intentions come from such a wide variety of views, which in many cases are contradictory, and we see fractures already in these alliances. No, rather our joy, our comfort is that before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. We'll sing that in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you Again, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I'm so conscious that what I have said in one sense is so, can be so simplistic, full of generalizations. But Father, those of us who, uh, as it were, look on social media, those of us who are aware of what's going on, are so conscious of the changes that are taking place and of the completely contrary ideas that there are to the knowledge of who you are 
and what you have given. But we thank you for your amazing grace and we thank you for all the difference it makes to us and we thank you that Jesus rules and reigns and he does so in the hearts of all who have called out to him to be their Lord and Saviour. Thank you that in Jesus we have our identity. And we pray for men and women who do feel so alienated, so empty, so broken. We thank you for their search, but Father, our longing is that their search would come to the only satisfying conclusion, and that is the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. So help us to understand these things. Help us to live them out, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.